church. Good to see you this morning. So good to be back. If you are new here, we want to welcome you. I'm Pastor Brad, one of the pastors here at this church. Uh, man, I got to tell you, it is great to have Todd and Shana and, and their family on our team. Didn't they do a great job this morning? Uh, fantastic. And I do need to thank Jeannie and Weston uh, for their leadership. Uh, Jeannie, over the last umpteen years, whatever it is, and Weston over the last eight and nine months. Uh, one of our focuses in our church has been worship, and we are really taking it to the next level, and they have helped with that. And we're so glad that Todd and Shane have joined us. And I, I got to say, this morning was great, so thank you guys so much. Make sure you stay after to greet them and their family, and also to thank Jeannie and Weston as well. Well, if you have not been here over the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series called Group, God's Plan for Creating and Sustaining Community. And we said this in the first week, that creating community takes work. Creating community takes work. And we learned that in, a, in an organization, there is a mission and vision. And we try to align everything with that mission and mission. And when something or someone steps outside of that vision or mission, there creates what we call slack. And we said this at the beginning of the week, that... You know this to be true, that when there is slack in an organization, you have to pick up the slack to keep it on track. That's right. You have to pick up the slack to keep it on track. And we heard Paul write a letter to a community that he was concerned about because there were people in the community causing slack. This community had a purpose. They had a mission. They had a goal. This was a movement of Jesus Christ. And there were people who thought he was coming back, and so they decided they were just going to stop working. You met these people, right? exhausting and they were mooching off people and Paul writes them and he tells them listen you need to work for what you eat and so we said this that an unwillingness to work is a refusal to thrive an unwillingness to work is a refusal to thrive and you're thinking like like unwillingness to work in what way we're talking about transformation in your life we're talking about spiritual formation and see, we often blame others. We say, I don't feel like I'm being fed. But the question we asked was, when did feeling like you're being fed actually become a replacement for being fed? And so we said, if you're going to be part of this church, you need to work for what you eat. And we said that creating community takes work, but we want you to take care of yourself. And Paul says, you are responsible for your own spiritual development. Not your pastor, not your teacher, not your small group leader. It is you. So if you're starving, it's your fault. I'm saying that with grace today. <laughs> and so Paul tells us, he tells us at the very beginning that we have to work for what we eat. And we said the best way for you to get invested is to get connected. And then Pastor Jeannie, by the way, while I was in the Tetons with some guys from our church, uh, she preached last week a great, great message on authenticity. Yeah, you can give her a hand. She did a great job. Give her a hand, please. And Jeannie talked to us about appearances, that often we try to maintain appearances rather than sharing the true experiences that are happening in our lives. And the reality is, is you want people to join your story, but they really can't join your story when you're not telling them the truth about who you are. They really don't know who you are when you aren't sharing the truth about who you are. And so one of the things that we do when we're in group, and we believe this is how God creates community, is that we share experiences in our life so others can join us in that journey. Here's what I know to be true. That when somebody shares a story that you've had an experience in life, you suddenly have credibility with that person. You resonate with that person 
in a way that other people don't. On a trip, I had a guy that was in the army, we were in the Tetons, and we were sharing army stories back and forth, and I sure Chris felt like he was left out the entire time, because we just were telling army stories. But there was a connection there. There's credibility there, because we'd experienced something together that nobody else had experienced. And so we said that creating community requires authenticity. And so if you've missed over the last couple of weeks, I want you to go online. I want you to watch the messages. Or if you don't have time to watch, you can get the podcast. You can listen to it while you're at work. And you can catch up to where we are today. And so you're saying, I'm new here. Why do you do groups? Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. Circles are better than sanctuaries. That's what we like to say around here. See, when I sit here and talk with you, I talk at you for about 30 minutes. There are things that you maybe disagree with or you have questions about or you don't understand or you want to talk about, but you really can't do that in this setting. And so the sanctuaries create more questions rather than they do answers. And so we believe that when you gather in circles, when you gather in groups together, this is the time where you can share authentically about the questions you have, maybe some concerns you have about the faith. I mean, this is the time for you to be real. And for you to get your questions answered. So we believe in groups. And so this morning I want to work with this idea. I want to work with this idea that creating community has context. Creating community has context. That's the idea we want to work with today. So if you would, would you pray for me before we begin this message? And uh, I'm excited about what we're going to be discovering today. Lord, we give thanks for this day, we, we take these next few moments to listen to how you would speak into our lives and speak into our hearts. Would you speak truth to us today as we discover your glorious, your good word that brings us life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been silenced? Have you ever been silenced by a situation, someone or something, where you know you should have said something? Have you ever had a situation where you were silent and you knew you should have said something about it? Now, we've all lived for a little while in life. Maybe you've had a rumor spread about you that you knew wasn't true at all. But the reality is, if you defended the very rumor that was going on, that people, things that people were saying about you, if you were to defend yourself, it would almost look as though it were true. And so you decided in that moment, rather than fighting against the people who are saying things that are untrue about you, you decided that you would remain silent. Maybe you've witnessed an employee who was being treated badly by an employer. And instead of saying something, because you knew that if you said something to your boss, your job would be in jeopardy, you just decided that in that moment, rather than standing up for what was right, you decided that you would be silent. Where are my students? Many of you are going back to school this week. My students are going back to school this week, right? Now, if you've been a student for any period of time, you know and I know that we've all had friends or we've been that friend where we've cheated on tests, right? You've had a friend that you looked at and, and you know you didn't study and you know they didn't study and you looked over and here they are, they're cheating on the test. Now you can do one of three things. You can one, tell the teacher. You can two, confront them about it. Or three, you can just stay silent. The reality is you're not going to tell the teacher the other thing is, is you're not going to jeopardize that relationship by confronting them. So what do we do? We just stay silent. Maybe you've been in public. Maybe you've been in public and there's been something bad happen or somebody, there was an altercation in a parking lot. And you knew that you should have said something in that moment because you could have stood up for somebody. But instead, 
you didn't want to get in the mess and you decided I'm staying out and you were silent. The reality is for you and for me that silence in our lives has the power to suppress our soul. Silence has the power to suppress the human soul. Write that down for those of you taking notes. Silence has the power to suppress the human soul. I want to get that through your heads because this is extremely important this morning because some of you, some of your human souls, your lives are being suppressed and you don't even know it. So I want you to turn to your partner and say, silence, silence has the power to suppress the human soul. Say it. Silence has the power to suppress the human soul. So, this morning we're going to work with that idea. There's this great rapper in the first century. Many of you didn't know he was a rapper, but he was a rapper. His name was David. He was an ancient writer. He, was, he wrote poems and he wrote lyrics to songs. He was a great rapper. And you're saying, well, who's David? Well, David was this guy who was um, kind of like a nobody. He was the runt of the litter and... All of a sudden, uh, his brothers were at war with this great Philistine army, and they were good-looking, and they were handsome, and they were smart, but they were afraid. And so here comes David to save the day. He's like, why are you afraid? I don't need your sword, your armor. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to find these stones, and I'm going to hit Goliath, Goliath in the head. And that's what he does. He grabs five stones, knocks Goliath down. Immediately, immediately, David becomes famous. Throughout the land, he becomes famous. In fact, he becomes so famous that he becomes king. He replaces Saul. Saul was the king of the Israelite army at the time, and David becomes king. Now, here's what you need to know about David. David, I don't know if this was like self-acclaimed or this is just something that was given to him, but David was described as a man after God's own heart. David was a man described after God's, a man after God's own heart. But you know, and I know, that when anybody gets in power, they think they can do whatever they want. You know, uh, I know we don't have any context for that in our, you know, in, in America at all. But here's the reality. When, when somebody gets in power, they can do whatever they want. They can hurt people. They can get rid of people. They can fire people. If they don't like a situation, they make it go away. That's what they do. And so here is a man after God's own heart, and one night while his army is off fighting other people, he sees a woman bathing, and he looks down, and, you know, he's just the nature of a guy. He sees a woman bathing, he's a king, he has power, he says, I'm going to sleep with that woman, and we know what happens when people sleep together. Pew, babies, right? So David has a baby with this woman. By the way, this woman was married. This, not to David, by the way, he was very... She was married to some other man who was off fighting a war. So David finds out that she's pregnant. He finds out that she's pregnant, and so he decides, I've got to cover this up. So he calls back the woman's husband. His name was Uriah. He comes back, and he sets it up that he will basically cover up this whole mistake that had happened. That Uriah would come back from war. He'd sleep with his wife, and he would think it was his baby. And, and you, get the, you get the picture. But Uriah was a faithful man. You see, it was customary that, that if other soldiers and other people from your company were out fighting, you didn't get the benefits of being with your wife and other people that you loved. So when he comes back, he sits at the front of the gate, and he doesn't even go to meet his wife. And David's like, oh, my goodness. It's not working. Here I'm trying to cover up the fact that I have a baby. I don't know what to do. This guy's not going to come back and see his wife. 
So he decides in this moment that he's going to send Uriah back to the front lines and he's going to have him assassinated, not by the other people, but by his own people. Make sure that he dies. By the way, did I tell you that David was a man after God's own heart? <laughs> you know, a, a guy, when we talk about somebody seeking after God, this was the guy who was searching after God. He was looking for God. He knew God in a way that nobody else knew. And yet he was somebody who was sleeping with other women and he murdered other people and he had him assassinated. Man after God's own heart. But you know it, right? You've made mistakes. You've got issues. You do things that are wrong, and eventually it catches up to you. And so David begins to feel the consequences of his actions. He begins to feel the guilt in his life, and he is, well, he describes it. He describes it in Psalm 32. I want you to listen to what he says. I love this. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Now we'll get to what David says in a minute about his current circumstance. But David addresses this nasty word in the church. It's kind of like a cuss word. We don't like to say it here, but it's this word sin. We don't like to talk about it because it makes us uncomfortable. In fact, the reality is sin wants us to be silent about the fact that sin exists. And I think part of the reason why we don't like talking about sin as the church is because we haven't defined it very well. I kind of think the church defines sin like the way that some people make rules. Like everything begins with no. Don't you hate that? Like no jumping, no yelling, no running, no swimming, no screaming. I mean, don't you hate rules like that? See, I like rules that can tell me what I can do rather than what I can't do. And so the way I like to define sin is that it's doing something other than that you were designed to do. Doing something other than what you were designed to do. Sin is doing something other than what you were designed to do. You see, we were designed to be in relationship with this God who created us and we were meant to experience an amount of love and grace and creativity and beauty and life that we've never experienced before when we don't have God in our lives. So we're meant to be in relationship with him, but not only to have a relationship with God, but then to reflect that very image back to the world. You see, your faith is not just about you. It's about reflecting the very good that's in your life that God has given you back to other people. This is what you were designed for. Innately designed in each of you is a heart and passion to see things restored. Designed within each of you is purpose and mission. Whether you want to admit it or not, you have mission in life. Designed within you is a capacity to love people like nobody else because you've been loved like nobody else. That's what we were designed for. And what happens when we live outside that design is we find that those things do not come to fruition. So when we live something other than what we were designed to do, we have brokenness, we have severed relationships, we have hurt, we have pain, we have guilt, we have suffering in our lives. And David, David talks about this. Listen to what he says. He says in verse uh, verse 4, Excuse me, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones 
wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, my bones wasted away. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Does it just make you tired reading that passage? Does it just make you tired just just reading that? What David wants to express to us is that in the moment where he recognizes where he is wrong, where he has, quote, sinned, when he is doing something other than what he is designed to do, there is a weight and an anguish and a suppression of the human soul that he cannot control. He cannot break it. And he's crying and he's yelling and he's screaming in the midst of this pain. You know, I find it interesting that Jesus, that Jesus meets a paralytic on the mat. He's laying on the mat and he walks up to him. And some people believe that, uh, other than what others believe that day, that this guy was paralyzed not because somebody hit him over the head, not because he had a spinal injury, but people believed he was paralyzed because he had done something so bad in his life that he was physically, physically paralyzed. You've done this, right? You've done something in your life that was so bad that you couldn't even move. And notice that Jesus, in that Matthew passage, addresses his very need. He says, what's the first thing he says to him? Not to get up and walk. He says, your sins are forgiven. And that's what David is expressing to us today is that in this moment, he is feeling paralyzed in life. He is feeling like he has no way out. In other words, he cannot be fully human in life because he can't live the way he was designed. But there's more to to this feeling. I want you to hear this. He says this, in my silence. Hear that? Turn to your partner and say silence this morning. That's kind of funny. Silence. In my silence, it was in my silence that my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My strength was sapped like the heat of the summer. And here's what we have to understand this morning. It is sin's goal. It is sin's mark. It is sin's identity, it is sin's role to keep you silent. That is the goal of of, of sin. It is to keep you silent. So here's what I know to be true. It's not that sin has power over you. It is the silence of that sin that has power over you. Did you get that? You see, we think sin has power over us. We think that we can't control it. But the reality is, it is your silence of that sin that has power over you. And you know, and I know, we get this. We do something wrong. We internalize it. We get away from people. We find ourselves in our own home. We close ourselves off. And what you were saying in that moment is, I can deal with sin in my own way. Do do you realize that silence is a rejection of God's grace. Silence is a rejection of God's grace and love that he wants to extend you. Would you stay silent? Essentially what you're saying is, I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody's help. But the reality is, you can't 
break the power of sin without God's grace. You cannot move past it. You cannot move past sin as long as you are silent. So listen to what David says. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and you did not cover my iniquity. He said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you, get this, he confesses, he confesses and it says, the Lord forgave the guilt of my sin. Confession. Simply speaking about what is holding us down is the very thing that will release you from the bondage of death. I, I kind of like to think about this. that If silence is a rejection of God's grace, then confession is a reliance upon his love. If silence is a rejection of God's grace, then confession is a reliance upon his love. So we move, when, when we decide in this moment that we are going to speak out into the abyss, and it feels sometimes like it's nothing, but when we speak truth about our life, we admit that we can't do it on our own, and there is a reliance upon God's grace and his love to break you from the chains that have been holding you down so you can once again live into the purpose and the mission that God has for each of you. But you have to break the silence. You have to break the silence. You know what I love about this passage is as soon as David confesses, as soon as he speaks out loud the very thing that he had done wrong, we don't even find sin in the rest of the psalm. He's done rapping about sin. It's all wrapped up. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> we need to break our silence. You need to break your silence. You need to be, move beyond what is, what is holding you and breaking you and keeping you from something better and more it is keeping you from a, a kind of love and a joy and a trust and a faith and a patience that God has created you for I love this that we we move from we move from David's example of confession to a context for confession remember creating community has a context so if you would, would you turn to James with me real quick? If you don't know where James is, that's fine. We'll put it up on the screen. I'm sure I'm going to have trouble finding it as well. But listen to what he says in James 5. He says, is anyone among you sick? Now, I know that James is like literally talking about physically sick. But if you go back to the Matthew passage of the paralytic who's sick, we could also imply that somebody could be sick simply from their sin. That they're paralyzed from the very thing that's holding them down. He says, is anyone of you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And then prepare, and the, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Well, there, there it is right there, right? <laughs> the direct correlation. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. If you pray and anoint them, they will be forgiven. In other words, they will no longer be sick. Therefore, here it is. Here's the context. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be, what is the word? 
healed. Healed. It is. It is when we confess. It is when we confess in the context of togetherness that sin loses its power. Sin loses its power when we confess in the context of togetherness. And I think that's what I want you to know today, is that sin becomes powerless when we confess in the context of togetherness. I think we have that up on the screen for those of you who want to write it down. Sin becomes powerless when we confess in the context of togetherness. Now, for those of you not familiar with our background and where we come from, we have a gentleman named John Wesley who founded this this kind of movement that we have, and, and he was a really cool guy. But John Wesley believed in community groups. He believed in small groups. In fact, here was his rule. If you didn't attend a small group, you couldn't be part of the overall church. If you didn't go to group, you weren't part of the, the larger church. Now, we kind of have it backwards here, right? We think you have to come to church first, and then you can be in a small group. Like, this is your ticket here, and then you can go there. No, 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 no. In John Wesley's day, it was the other way around. You see, you would invite people to your group, and they would mentor you, they would coach you, they would love you, you would confess, you would share together, you would talk about your life, and once you kind of moved into the Christ-like life, it was like, okay, now you can represent the body well. You can represent the church well. You know why our you know, churches all over the world aren't represented well? It's because a lot of people don't know what it means to be Christian. They don't know how to be Christian. Not their fault. It's just simply that we have not discipled or taught them. So he, he got this, that we would disciple people first, and then we would invite them into the gathering of people. And they had a list of questions that they would ask that none of us would want to ask. But here's what he says. This is what we learn about John Wesley. They, the believers, this is what he says. They will meet together once a week, hear this, to confess their faults to one another and to pray for one another that they may be healed. John took this pretty seriously. In fact, he had pastors who let wealthy people buy the pastors off so they didn't have to group. And you know what John did with those pastors? He fired them. He said, there is no amount of money. There is no amount of power. I don't care who you are, John says, you will be part of a small group. And if you don't, then I don't know how to, in, I don't know how to invite you into our community. So here's, here's what I need you to do. I need you to be part of a group. We've been spending, what, two weeks? We'll spend one more week on the importance of groups because we believe that this is the way that God sustains and creates a healthy community. I need you to join a group. I need you to be part of it. It is essential to your formation. Is it essential to your life? Listen, if you're not a Christian, totally cool, right? That's the place to ask lots of great questions that, you know, oftentimes people in church don't want to answer. But this is the place where you get to learn, you get to grow, you get to share. And as we learn today, there is something about speaking the very things of our lives that bring power to you by God's grace. If you want healing, if you want to experience the love of God, if you're tired of rejecting God's grace, then confess it. Tell your neighbor. 
get in a group so they can pray for you. They can share with you so that you may be healed. And I love that word healed because when you are healed from an ailment, you're like on the move. You're on the go. You're ready to get back at it. You're ready to get back to what God designed you to do, your mission and your purpose in life. So for those of you a little bit confused about groups, I need, I know some of you were in groups last year. We get that, and it's a great chance that you'll be in the same groups this year. But we still need you to go online and register. We still need you to go online and sign up for small groups. You'll still be in the same. We just need to know how many people we have and how to divvy them up. So if you could go online this week and sign up, or if you'd like to meet us in the back, we'll sign you up out there. Uh, we need you to go on and sign up for small groups so we know who we have. Now. Maybe the group thing's not for you. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're new to this whole faith thing. Maybe you like, uh, this is my first time here. I'm not joining a group. I don't know you people. I understand that. But maybe there's a reason why you're here today. Maybe there's a reason why you're here. And maybe you need to take the next few moments because there is something eating at your soul. There is something that has happened in your life that is keeping you silent and you don't know where to go you don't know what to do you don't know where to turn but i'm telling you the only way to break the sin that is keeping you silent is to confess it and once you confess it i'm telling you god's grace will be given to you in a way that you've never experienced before there is freedom in confession so this morning we're gonna come to the table and we're going to receive communion. If For those of you serving communion, would you come, for, come forward this morning? I'm going to ask Todd to come up and play for us. One of the things we do at this church every week is we believe that we're not going to make you raise hands and feel awkward or, or even come to an altar and in front of everybody and, and, and make you feel uncomfortable. But one of the ways that we respond to a message is by receiving the body and blood of Christ. We, we receive, we believe that there's grace in this table, that, that God's presence is in this and he meets you in this moment. And when you receive the, 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 the bread and the cup, there's something that happens because you've responded to what God is wanting to say to you today. So this morning, I would invite you, as you walk forward, confess, Confess to God and say, here it is. Here's my problem. Here's my issue. Just confess it today and receive the cup and the body that has the power to change your life. This morning, let me pray. Lord, we give thanks for your goodness to us. We give thanks for your sacrifice on the cross. We give thanks that you are a God that invites us to come to the altar where there is no more brokenness and there is no more pain. Lord, I pray this morning for those who have come today who feel like they can't move. They feel like that in life they are paralyzed by, by things that they have done or things that they have experienced by other people. And instead of talking about it, they feel like the best way to deal with it is to be silenced. 
Lord, I pray that today that they would make a move, that they would take a next step to confess out loud that you are Lord, that you have power over this sin and you can change their life. Lord, this morning we raise our hands as an acknowledgement that we confess to you. We raise them high, we lift them up and we say, yes, we need you, Lord. We confess that you are God. We confess that perhaps we're not living up to what we're supposed to be doing. Maybe we've done wrong. Maybe it's something as simple as not listening to a significant other. Whatever it may be, we confess it today and we give you the power over that sin. Come and eat this morning in Jesus' name.